Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, January 2nd, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. Science in the City. We hope you all had a safe and happy holiday. Today, we're rebroadcasting one of the most popular podcasts we've ever produced, originally aired in November 2006. Astronomer and scientist Carl Sagan was a pioneer in the field of astrobiology, the study of the origin, evolution, and future of life in the universe. He was also an advocate for a scientific worldview, one with no space for religion or creationism. Today, we sit in on a discussion between Sagan's widow, Anne Druin, his former colleague, Steve Soder, and Hayden Planetarium director, Neil deGrasse Tyson. They talk about Sagan's science and the search for God. So, it's a new year. You've decided that you're going to get that gym membership, maybe spend less time in your cubicle and more time with your family. But what are you going to do for your brain? Science in the City's Five Senses series is your solution fresh new science and arts program right here at the Academy. Top scientists and cool artists join forces to get behind our senses. Coming up on January 12th, cognitive neuroscientist Christoph Koch and ex-magician Apollo Robbins team up for the science of vision. To get your tickets, log on to scienceandthecity.com slash five senses. And I was wondering if you could share with us some people here might not be familiar with Carl Sagan's life. It has been 10 years. There might be some younger people in the audience for whom Carl Sagan is a distant memory, or perhaps they haven't even heard of him. If you could just give us a couple of minute overview on who Carl Sagan was to America, to the world, to the universe. Okay, well, Carl Sagan was born in Brooklyn to a working class family. And uh, from his earliest years, he was fascinated with the question of whether or not there was life elsewhere. And so, uh, as Steve has observed, he was the first person of whom we know who decided to pursue a career in astrobiology before there was such a field. And to do that, he became an astrophysicist, studied biology, studied with the foremost experts on the question of the origin of life here, as well as uh, uh, experts on the planets. And he became a scientist educated at the University of Chicago, and not only became a scientist, but from his earliest years, he had a passion to communicate to the broadest possible public audience the great power and the joy of scientific discovery. And at that time, there was a terrible professional penalty to be pay- paid for doing that kind of public education. The community of science was very exclusive, kept out the women, kept out everyone who really wasn't a white guy. And, um, and they had, took a very dim view of anybody who would want to speak in the language of the public to communicate about what they were doing and why it was interesting. That was one problem. The other problem was that they also took a dim view of scientists who were pursuing their bliss, who, were, who became a scientist in order to answer these deep questions. And so even the question of whether or not there was life elsewhere, and if there was, what it would be like, was considered disreputable. And so, when we think of Carl, I think the things that are most outstanding about him 
is that um, he was one of the pioneers in the science of astrobiology. He took his understanding of planetary atmospheres, was the first person to know the actual temperature of the planet Venus. He took his understanding, his scientific understanding of these other worlds and applied it to our own world. Very high temperature for Venus. It was hot, yes. much hotter than anyone So it's not thought. just finding a temperature. It right. was like finding right. a high, a runaway high. greenhouse Ooh, effect. Hot. Very yes. hot, very okay. hot. Yeah, so that was, that was a very impressive thing. But then he also had this passion to communicate. So unlike his colleagues, he went on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson dozens of times, some 36 or 40 times, to talk about the missions uh, to the planets. His life coincided very beautifully with the first 40 years of the space age. He was a participant in every one of NASA's missions until his death. And, um, and the great thing about him was that he was not ashamed to, or not too proud or too much of a snob, to want to write for, let's say, Parade Magazine, reached 70 million people every Sunday. And what he was trying to communicate was not only the latest findings, scientific findings, but also uh, as one of the authors of the nuclear winter paper, one of the uh, first people to understand that there could be long-term climatic consequences uh, in a full exchange of a nuclear war. He also had a tremendous social conscience and he was, his act of communication, of communicating about science was a kind of passionate act of citizenship. He wanted to, uh, to reach as many people as he could. He felt that the public was paying for all these great scientific missions and, um, and he was the first person to convince NASA to put cameras on the spacecraft. So that uh, NASA was saying, well, what do we need cameras for? We've got mass spectrometers. We've got all kinds of scientific instruments. What do we need cameras for? But Carl understood the great power of the imagery uh, of sending spacecraft to Mars and to the outer solar system and bringing back these images of new worlds. He understood that we were living in a golden age of space exploration, and he wanted everyone to be a part of it. So uh, he was an extraordinary person. He took a lot of uh, abuse and flack for being such a powerful communicator. But in his Cosmos television series and the dozen books he wrote and the Pulitzer Prize winning Dragons of Eden, he was daringly interdisciplinary. And as it was said of another great scientist, Edmund Halley, he was always ready to communicate. Would you say that he was in the spirit of Galileo, where no one had ever written science in a language other than Latin before Galileo wrote in Italian? And Galileo writes about his scientific discoveries in Italian, which means ordinary common folk, literate common folk, could read it, not just the intelligentsia who were fluent in Latin. And so in a way, he was kind of breaking the traditions. Uh, is this sort of the modern version of that, would you say? Well, I, I would have to be honest and say that Lauren Isley and some of the other scientists who uh, came slightly just before Carl were also trying to do the same thing. But I think no one ever did it as effectively as Carl. He was a global figure. There wasn't a country on Earth uh, because Cosmos has now been seen by over a billion people. There wasn't a place on Earth where he walked, where people didn't come up to him and say, thank you for making me feel a part of the cosmos and for making me feel that I could understand the latest revelations of the modern scientific revolution. Steve, you're a colleague of his. Mm -hmm. What was your what was going on among his colleagues at the time that he was becoming popular? Well, 
You mean in science or in... Well, both. Any, all, all, of course, all of the above. Well, in science, of course, it was, as Anne said, the, the golden age, the opening of the, a new uh, age of exploration of wonderful discoveries coming one on top of another, and he was uh, in the forefront. The discoveries brought by NASA. By, by NASA spacecraft, yes. principally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, and because he was taking these discoveries and the wonder of it to the public, because he was he was thrilled by it and wanted to share the excitement of it, uh, he said, actually, uh, in, uh, when you're in love, you want to tell the world. And what he was talking about was his love, his passion for, for this science, for this un new understanding. Because he was doing that, uh, a number of his colleagues were actually aghast. They, they thought this was uh, improper, undignified, that uh, not, not people that knew him personally particularly worked with him, but other people in the field. I thought that it was rather undignified for a scientist to be going to the public in this fashion. Would they have preferred he just leave the public out of it? Even though, as Anne said, this is research funded by tax-based sources. Well, I think they wouldn't object to articles in Scientific American, that sort of thing. But when he went on the Johnny Carson show, I, there was a, a lot of alarm. And in fact, I myself remember that I was somewhat alarmed. I didn't know how this would turn out. I thought this might be taking it a little too far. And so was, you were against him going on the Johnny Carson show? <laughs> I think initially, I, when I heard about it, I was, although I didn't tell him that. But uh, I, I, I had, yeah, I had some concern that th this might hurt him. Uh, but when I saw how beautifully he carried it off, uh -huh. uh, and, and then subsequent uh, interactions with Johnny Carson, how well it was working, how, how effectively he was communicating, how much... Uh, the rapport between Carson and Sagan and the audience, I realized he had done the right thing. And so did others agree with you? I think most did, but there were, there were certainly some who were quite bitter about it, always, and sniped at Carl and criticized him and, and tried to penalize him in the, uh, in the academic community, who blocked his uh, being named to the National Academy of Sciences, for example, although he richly deserved it for his major scientific contributions. And so how did you end up collaborating, ultimately? Well, uh, pr my principal collaboration with him really was, was, was on the Cosmos television series. Uh, but uh, I was at Cornell University uh, when he arrived there in 1968, and I was delighted. He came from Harvard, if I remember correctly. Yes. Is that right? Yes. And they were not too happy with him at Harvard because of this kind of popularization. He was already popularizing at Harvard. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. I remember I saw him uh, first on television in the early 1960s when I was uh, a young undergraduate in astronomy. And I realized here was somebody who was talking about something that also passionately interested me and talking about it sensibly and in a serious scientific way about life in the universe. I myself had been interested in that, and I remember I had gone to one of my own professors in the astronomy department at UCLA to say that I thought I would like to also take a minor in biology because of this interest, and he all but threw me out of his office. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that was the attitude then. Uh, was the attitude that biology had nothing to do with astronomy or that the cross-pollination of the sciences would lead to no great insight? I, I what what would was, you say was behind the, the, it, the it was that this was not serious science, that there was... You're looking for aliens, yeah, you mean. Yeah. It was but science fiction. It was science fiction. And so, actually, uh, that's, that uh, set me back. I did not pursue that. But Carl was made of sterner stuff. <laughs> but, I, but I kept up my interest in this. And then, uh, as a graduate student at Cornell in 1968, when I learned that he was coming there to where I was, mm -hmm. I was, of course, thrilled and delighted and when we met we immediately became uh, fast friends and realized we had a lot of things in common and remained so until his death. Uh, so Annie, the, 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 the lectures that became the substance of this book, uh, what are, what are the, what's the origin of those? Well, in 1984, Carl was invited to give the Centennial Gifford Lecture the following year. Now, the Gifford Lectures were endowed by Lord Gifford for the four Scottish universities with the idea that the greatest 
theologians, scientists, philosophers would come and give an extended lecture series on the question of natural theology, which at that time in 1885 was described as everything to do with God without resorting to revelation. So it was basically uh, a mandate to discuss the, the natural evidence for the existence of God or non-existence. And um, Carl was thrilled. Uh, previous Gifford lecturers were Werner Heisenberg, Niels Bohr, uh, Hannah Arendt, uh, Freeman Dyson. Um, it was a really, it was a great honor. And of course, this was a chance for him to talk for nine lectures and think about the existence of God, which was absolutely one of his favorite subjects. It's something we talked about endlessly together. So he did a huge amount of research, and what followed were the Gifford Lectures in 1985. And uh, William James had given the Gifford Lectures in 1902, and he called his lectures, when he turned them into a book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, very influential book, still in print to this day, which uh, was William James, the psychologist? The, one of the founders of modern psychology, right. yes. And when I rediscovered Carl's, the manuscript, the audio transcript of Carl's Gifford lectures and began to read them, having witnessed them when they were given and remembered how mesmerizing they were, I was delighted to see that on the page they held up beautifully, coherent, uh, just marvelous, crystalline uh, series of arguments about the existence of God, wandering, ranging as wide as Carl's consciousness was, so including uh, the question of, of extraterrestrial intelligence, what the extraterrestrials would be like, a wonderful piece on intelligent design, which back in 1985, Carl described as a kind of hydra that reappears every five or 10 years and had been doing so since right just after the Second World War. And he gave the most exquisite description, the best, most compelling argument for intelligent design I have ever heard, better than any no, proponent. No, tell. I mean, if you tell us the most exquisite ever, you can't just leave well, us hanging here. I think actually Steve can do more justice to the fine scientific points of the argument, but my point is merely that it was very much in Carl's nature to try to give any opposing view its best expression. And for that reason, every time we wrote a book together or he wrote a book, uh, he insisted on circulating the manuscript to the people who were most likely to disagree with the premises in the book uh, so that they could make their best argument. And so in doing this intelligent design riff in the Gifford Lectures, he had the audience completely on the edge of their seat making this argument, and at the end of it, he totally demolished it. <laughs> brilliantly and, uh, and you began to realize how you know what the flaws in the logic were pleased you mm -hmm. well I think the, the, the argument that he was uh, advancing was this uh, it has been said that something as complicated as living organism could not arise by uh, natural processes it needs a designer if you found a pocket watch ticking away in the forest you would assume that it had been made by an intelligent designer and life is infinitely more complicated than a pocket watch. And a single cell is, and even a molecule of uh, an enzyme, a protein, a very complicated molecule. What would be the chance of making a protein, say a hundred amino acid long protein, and there's 20 amino acids, and they all have to be assembled in a particular order. He did the calculation. How, how likely would that happen by, by, by chance? 
This would be by random yeah, yes, yeah. chemical experiments yeah. in warm ponds. Yes. Well, he, in fact, he said if you had a chemical experiment going on in the ocean of every planet in the universe, billions of planets per galaxy, hundreds of billions of galaxies, and e an experiment was going on every Planck time, which is the shortest conceivable time, something like 10 to the minus 34 seconds, for the entire age of the universe, you would not be able to assemble this molecule by chance. And he, he then... Uh, he said, that sounds like a pretty strong argument, doesn't it? I mean, how, did, how does such a thing come to be? He cited uh, uh, an analogy by uh, two astronomers, Hoyle and Wickram Singh, in England, saying this would be as improbable. This is Fred Hoyle, just yeah. to put him in context. Yeah. Fred Hoyle, who advanced the notion that heavy elements are forged in the centers of high-mass stars. A brilliant astrophysicist, a major contributor, yeah. Okay. Uh, Hoyle and Wickham Singh said uh, to find a living organism and to assume that that was something assembled by, by random processes is, is as uh, un unlikely as that a, a whirlwind going through a junkyard would assemble a 747. <laughs> okay? And then let me just read you, if I may. We would all be astonished if that happened, yeah. for yes. sure. We would be That's a vivid image. It's also a very useful image because, of course, this is Carl speaking. The Boeing 747 did not spring full-blown into the world of aviation. It is the end product of a long evolutionary sequence, which, as you know, goes back to the DC-3 and so on until you get to the right biplane. Now, the right bi biplane does look as if it were spontaneously assembled <laughs> by a whirlwind in a junkyard. <laughs> and, while I, and while I don't mean to criticize the brilliant achievement of the Wright brothers, as long as you remember that there is this evolutionary history, it's a lot easier to understand the origin of the first example. It's well, that's a pretty clean yeah. case there. And of course, even if you wanted to go you earlier only than five, pardon? Uh, wasn't it that you only needed five a sequence oh, of yes, five? Yes. Yeah, the, other, the, other, the other case he makes is, is in this amino acid, um, in this in this enzyme rather, with a hundred amino acids, there's only five of them that are active sites. Uh, the rest of them really s just sort of hold it together. You don't need all of that detailed information. And uh, the chance of getting five amino acids right is, is a manageable number. He said that will happen by a random experiment every second Tuesday. Okay. okay. But he did the Not math. Not on Wednesday, and but on Tuesday. He did, yeah. he did the math in front of the audience, <laughs> and he was holding them spellbind. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so... Uh, but, but even if the right flyer, if you wanted yeah. to give that more credit than what well, is implied here, you can go back before then. It goes back to uh, Leonardo da Vinci, and okay. before that by people watching birds. And of course, birds developed flight by this process of e evolution. And even some didn't. Yes. <laughs> like and penguins. Then, oh, then some lost it. And, and so what are the wings of a penguin? How intelligent is that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good point. I guess they're not for flying, not no. at all. Um, so, Annie, let me ask you. It's commonly remembered that Carl was an atheist. He's been said that's been said of him, but you knew him closest, perhaps. Is that an accurate description of him, or or not? How would you characterize his spirituality or his religiosity? Well, in fact, he was not an atheist, and he once said that. Uh, in some respects, an atheist was a very silly person because the implication being that the universe is so vast that we have so little knowledge, our, our knowledge of the universe, we've only been systematically, scientifically investigating the universe for a mere four centuries. And so our knowledge of the universe is very superficial and very new. We are very ignorant. And so the questions of how the universe came to be and uh, if there you know, was anyone involved in its creation, 
are still open questions. Uh, he was truly an agnostic, and that's because science was his religion, and he viewed science as a form, as informed worship, as a way to search for the sacred, for the spiritual truths of life, but to do it with this phenomenally successful error-correcting methodology, which is always winnowing out those things that we want to believe, but that may not be true. We are great liars as a species. We lie to each other, we lie to ourselves. And so we need this, uh, the scientific method to constantly test, and the great, uh, to test reality, to test our perceptions of reality, because we're so often wrong. And of course, science is a permanent revolution. It never ends, because science reserves the highest rewards for the scientist who will prove the most cherished beliefs of the scientific community wrong. Of course, there's resistance because scientists are human beings and not always faithful to this credo. Uh, but to the extent that science is faithful to it, it's so powerful that you can go from, let's say, Galileo's first look through a telescope in 1609 to being beyond the edge of the solar system before 2009. You can gets you to the stars, and only because it's a mechanism that is so relentlessly testing its own beliefs. Imagine what politics would be like if the, if the community of politicians were only interested in what was true and recognized, and recognized that their best efforts to find the truth were doomed to failure because there are no absolute truths that we can find. We can only find these little, tiny, successive approximations of reality. So Carl was truly a skeptic in the great tradition of science. He believed that in the absence of evidence, we have to withhold judgment. So that is not to say that he wasn't spiritual. That is not to say that he, he didn't have a sense of the sacred. He lived completely uh, inside and out in a very spiritual way. But he was, it was very important to him to reserve judgment and not to assume that he knew something that wasn't true. And so even in, in facing the deaths of his parents, who he loved very deeply, in facing his own mortality, he, in a very devout way, never, ever gave up that commitment to what he believed reality was. You freely use the word sacred in describing his search for what moves him in the universe. That's not how a religious person would use the word sacred, I don't think. Uh, could you clarify that? Well, it, I don't think that the sacred necessarily has to do with the supernatural. In fact, I think the fact that we call the supernatural the supernatural rather than the subnatural reveals our contempt for nature, reveals our lack of a sense of, of how sacred life is. I mean, what is science telling us? It's telling us that we live as part of a 13 and a half billion year continuity. That, as, stars, as Carl said so magnificently, that we are star stuff, that every gene, bone, molecule of our physical reality, of ourselves, were formed in the hearts of distant stars. I mean, scientist is revealing the oneness of all things, of life. It tells us in countless different ways. So for me, 
the natural is really the thing that we should hold highest. And that's something I learned from Carl, that nature is far more magnificent than anything we could imagine. And if we really, if we had a spiritual, if we had a spiritual uh, approach to nature, which was grounded in nature, as opposed to the conventional religions, which are in so many ways, not only not grounded in nature, but contemptuous of what's natural. Uh, that that might account for the fact that we are, seem to be unable to awaken ourselves from the kind of stupor that we're in, in terms of the way we treat each other and the way we treat this planet. But allow me to be devil's advocate, or I guess it would be Please. God's advocate if, um, for the moment. Go ahead. Um, if you already exceeded through your own thinking and through the philosophies of Carl Sagan, that, and, and through any sensible scientist, that we, whatever we know about the universe, it is surely the smaller fraction rather than the larger fraction of what is knowable Amen. out there. We cede that. And then you see that what is not yet to be known could contain some forces, some elements that transcend what we now currently know or could possibly currently dream up. And someone who is a, a, a theologian might say, this is the foundation of their faith. The faith is anchored in the unknown that you have seeded that exists that's out there. And so, so what, 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 can you t tell me what kind of a conversation Carl would have with a theologian along those grounds? He would say, I know what he would say. He would say, I have no problem with a faith that's rooted in the unknown. It's when you tell me that your faith is rooted in the known that your understanding of what God is, is complete, that I have a problem. Oh. Is that fair? Yeah, I guess that shut me up right yeah. there. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, pretty was, good, right? That was a good answer. I mean, he, was, he was saying that, of course, that the religious traditions have a lot to teach us about many things, and we are who we are as a result of the generations of people who've enunciated and articulated these values. But he would also say, that um, you know that, that that science might be telling from Carl's point of view, I think he would have said science was telling a greater story to him, and he wouldn't at, for a moment deprive anyone else of the right of of, of loving a different story. But for him, this, this, the story that science was revealing was what moved him to his soul, what gave him goosebumps. Steve, do you get goosebumps too? I mean, you're a scientist. Oh, absolutely. You get goosebumps. Absolutely. There's nothing more. Uh, I think moving, thrilling than than contemplating the this stunningly beautiful picture of the universe that's revealed by science. I mean, I ask this because I I'm just curious. There are plenty of scientists who come to work every day and they just sort of do their work, and they're surely in love with their work, but they're not running out telling everybody. They're not appearing on TV. They're not writing books. They're not. They don't feel this. So did Carl just have some feeling inside of him? Is it realistic to expect that that feeling can and should be shared by everybody else? Well, or are we completely dependent maybe not on his poetry in order to to feel this? I I don't know if that's true. I mean, he was a tremendous writer, a great poet, and uh, had the capacity to really. If you'd been at those Gifford lectures and just seen the way that people just were absolutely pin drop silent really in the thrall. I mean, there's a man who's talking for about 15 hours, and yet the number of people just grew and grew and grew as the 
lectures as the weeks went by and the lectures and word of the lectures spread around Glasgow. Um, it was he. He did have this Glasgow, great poetry. Scotland. Yes. Scotland. He did have this great poetry, but it wasn't just the poetry. It was the truth of what he was saying. Because I think there are a lot of us who feel a longing for that soaring spiritual uplift that is so human. It may be primate. There may be non-human primates who experience it also. But as a human, I know what that feeling is, and I know that in discovering the way that this discipline of science, which unfortunately because of the, the tension between religion and science, it's as if science ceded all of the inspirational moments to the religious side, you know, saying, okay, you guys won't burn us at the stake anymore, and we'll let you have all the great music and the great art. And those great, you know, and that great so feeling. kind of a pact. And maybe that's why this community of science was so rejected, the scientists who wanted to go forth into the public. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church realized in the 60s that holding the mass in Latin was not uh, the best idea in terms of engaging the faithful. Well, science was way behind in that. The community of science was way behind in that sense that, no, this is a kind of a priesthood. We'll speak in a language that no one else can understand. Although we did give up Latin longer ago than that. But they sure. gave up the Latin, <laughs> but instead they adopted a language that was as every bit as inscrutable for the layperson. And uh, Carl was very much against that. He never spoke to impress people with how much he knew. It was always to communicate. Steve, does... Um there, there are many who speak of the laws of the universe as some expression of something all-powerful or the order of the universe as the handiwork of, if not intelligence, yeah. just some, some something out there yeah. beyond us. Uh, how did Carl think about the order of the universe, the laws of physics? How did they sit within him? How did he, was there a god of the laws of physics, as Einstein so yeah. oftenly uh, so often yep. referenced? Well, actually, it goes back to Spinoza, who was a Dutch philosopher in the uh, 17th century, who uh, wrote that, uh, in some sense, uh, the universe itself and the laws of, of its being uh, is God, can be identified with God. And, it, and Einstein... Literally or figuratively? Uh, both. Both, okay. <laughs> both. He felt that nature, that he worshipped nature. Yeah. Spinoza. Yes. Spinoza. Uh -huh. And Einstein uh, identified publicly with Spinoza's God, referred to it, uh, and he also, on a number of occasions, explicitly rejected the, the depiction of God in conventional religions. He had no problem with Spinoza's God. And uh, Carl said, if, if you ask me, do I believe in God, well, first tell me, how do you define God? If it is a wide range from Spinoza's God, the God of the universe, the, of, of, of the laws of the universe, of the, the cosmos itself, which may be intelligent, it looks intelligent. From that at one end, all the way to an anthropomorphic, oversized, usually white man with a long beard who sits on a throne and tallies the fall of every sparrow. That, that, that's sort of the extreme range, at least in the West, of depictions of God. There's a huge spectrum. You say, where do you, where do you come down in that spectrum? If you say, Spinoza's God, then, well, surely no one would deny the universe, the existence of the universe, and the laws of the universe. So well, you say all this matter-of-factly, but yeah. Spinoza did not fare well with his contemporaries. No, Spinoza, because of this and other heresies, he was Jewish, and he was, he was excommunicated by the Jewish uh, religious authorities. 
I didn't even know you could do that. Can they do that? Yes, do he was, but he's the only uh, person I know of that was a ex- Jew who was excommunicated by his co-religionists for this, and so he was outcast. As you said, I don't even think Jesus was excommunicated Jesus, as a Jew. Not Jesus, not Marx, not, right. no. you know, right. 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 No. So this was but, considered quite an, uh, an affront. Absolutely. And uh, so Carl said, well, no one denies that the universe exists and its laws exist. If that's what you call God, then of course... no. Uh, I, I could not deny. So that's indistinguishable from how yeah, whatever we course, reveal. In, in, if that's your definition, then God exists. I accept that. The, there's the, the evidence is for that. But he was interested in, in what is the evidence. He could not go beyond where there was no evidence. And so I, I'm curious because when we speak of religiosity, yeah. uh, you look at the public, just some data for the audience in case they were unfamiliar. There have been polls taken over the past century about how committed to religion the American public is. And the numbers are typically stay in the 90%, low 90s. Uh, They fluctuate, but they're up in the 90s. And it's in response to a question about not whether you go to synagogue or church every weekend, but whether you believe in a personal God who, for example, would answer your prayers. And that puts the question of are you religious at a pretty significant level if you say yes to that. And so when they do that, for Americans, it's up around 90%. No, I, may, I beg to differ, Neil. What? Forgive me. But, in fact, there was a very recent poll in the last month mm-hmm. which showed that, like so much of what we're led to believe, that that's absolutely not right, that there's something like 34% said they do not believe in God. 37% in addition said we have serious doubts about the existence of God. And it was about a third who felt real conviction for that kind of So what of are these numbers that I, I mean, I just saw these numbers uh, like a year ago. Well, I think it's part of a campaign to, I guess, to make us feel that, that those of us who don't subscribe to this... Uh, okay, so let me, let me finish the point, and I'll, I'll have, that number would still work fine in the point I'm making. I was just simply saying that the, the, the religiosity in the public is higher than what you find in academia, for example. Yes. And it is higher in ordinary academia among sort of PhD research people Mm -hmm. than it is among PhD scientists. Mm -hmm. And it is higher among those who are ordinary PhD scientists from among those who are the elite scientists who, for example, are members of the National Academy. And so this number just keeps dropping, all right? Right. And so a, a point that I found fascinating is among the members of the National Academy of Sciences, let's think of them as for the elite scientists, as the creme of the creme, that number's not zero. Right. It's low, but it's not zero. It comes in at about 7%. Exactly. And so if it's not zero, you can't just extrapolate, oh, if you're religious, you're just not educated enough. Here are some of the highest educated, most talented scientists in the land, and that number does not go to zero. So, so, so do, I, do I go and, and knock on their door and listen to what they have to say about God? Or do I listen to Carl Sagan, who says he's got Spinoza's God, but he's certainly not praying what? to him? So, so if I don't otherwise know who to pick and listen to, what guidance do I have? Well, there's 93% on one side and there's 7% on the other side. I mean, I, I feel that there's a, that I think most of the 7% would say, I'm pretty sure, that science and religion are what is called non-overlapping magisterium. That there is a... This is the title of Steve Gould's book. Uh, well, the subtitle. Rock of Ages. Uh, Rock of Ages. Yes. Yes. And it was yes. a theme, a major and, theme in his book. And may I say that I truly adored Stephen Jay Gould, and he and Carl were such great friends. 
and he's just one of my heroes. But I would like to respectfully disagree with him on this one issue. He argued in this book that there are these non-overlapping magisterium, which means that religion is one sphere of experience, which is not amenable to scientific investigation. And then um, science is another, which is somehow separate from our religious selves. And I would like to, I wish I could ask Steve this question for a million reasons, but it always occurred to me that for one thing, even the people, the 7% of the National Academy who would say that they believe in a conventional uh, religious traditional view of God, uh, even those 7%, if you ask them, what about those religions that no longer have any living adherents? The worshipers of Zeus, let's say, or the, let's say, Aztecs. Can we study those religions scientifically and say, well, that there seems to be a cross-correlation between people who are agricultural and people who have certain gods? You can. You, there's a whole cultural anthropology which says that it's okay to look at them and see them as a kind of sociological reality influenced by their economic underpinnings, by the kind of technology they had and their view of God. And yet the surviving religious traditions are off limits and can't be understood in those terms. I don't think he would, he would say that was true. And so for Carl, there was only one magisterium and that was nature. And the best way to have a deep understanding of nature was for him through science. I suspect what is beyond the known is a much vaster, maybe infinite sea of the unknown, and science advances by extending that boundary. I suspect that if in extending that boundary we found something that was commensurate with traditional natures of God, it would then become part of nature, it would become part of the natural world, and Carl would have no problem with accepting it as if there was evidence. Well, that's as an interesting green... point. What, what you're saying is, uh, that's a fascinating point. You're saying if you find something that's kind of godlike mm -hmm. in some way, then you no longer need faith to believe that because yes. you have the evidence in support of it. Yes. And so then that just becomes simply part of nature. Yes. And so, or part of what is within the sphere yes. of scientific investigation. Carl was passionate. So does it become science or does it stay religion? <laughs> could be both. Well, <laughs> let me, let's, let's because, that's, because, it's a good question. That is a good question, but let's remember that there was, science and, and religion were one until the modern scientific yep. revolution. Who were the creators of the modern scientific revolution? Copernicus, professional religious person. Yeah. Um, Kepler, mm -hmm. wanting to read the mind of God. Mm -hmm. uh, Newton, mm -hmm. a obsessed. biblical scholar obsessed with the finding numerological significance in the Bible. All of these were religious people. In fact, he wrote more on the subject of the Bible than yeah. he did on the on, subject of on, physics. On yeah. physics, Isaac Newton. exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, and I think this illustrates the point that they were, and Darwin, Darwin was going to be a country parson. Mm -hmm. And he says in his autobiography, if you had asked me when I was a, a young man, if every single one of the 57 articles of faith of the Anglican Church were the gospel truth, I would have said, of course they are. Of course they are. They are, absolutely. He didn't set out to, in any way, cause any trouble for any church or any religious people. All of these men were simply following where the science led. And what it led them to was an understanding, a deeper understanding of nature. And suddenly, things that were inexplicable 
for instance, the clockwork motion of the planets, they became understandable in the context of gravity. And so what I think has happened is that after this, this, the scientific revolution takes off, there's a kind of compact between religion and science. And science says, okay, you know, as I said earlier, we'll leave you all of this great soaring emotional feeling and we'll confine ourselves to a very elite priesthood which will be very careful of who it lets in and will only deal with things that aren't that interesting to everyone else and religion you know was given complete and total control over so is it fair to say realm of human experience is it fair to say you want science to reclaim access to the spiritual fulfillment one gets from doing science if that had previously been ceded to the religious circles because there's nothing like a committed religious person speaking about some religious revelation they had. It is deep. It is. It brings them to tears. Mm -hmm. This is an experience, an undeniable feeling yeah. that that such a person has. And while there are times I get misty when I'm on a mountaintop looking up to the universe, I don't. I, there's no time when I'm like on my knees crying. Uh, whereas that's not an uncommon. Yeah scenario among yes. people with a religious experience. But so are we suggesting that science can actually be that for people who are either searching or it'll give them something else to get misty-eyed about in addition to their religion? What is this offering that you're giving us here? Well, a couple of things. That's a very deep question and beautifully expressed as you express everything. Um, and I have so many thoughts on this subject. It's absolutely my favorite subject. But maybe you didn't feel, maybe there have been religious moments which were distinct from how you feel mostly when you're doing science. But how did you feel when your children were born? And how did you feel when you first had the first glimpse of the vastness of time and space of which you were a part? It seems to me that... It was a completely humbling experience. Right. Now, one religion is saying one thing. It's saying that, in effect, the universe was created for us, that we are, in a sense, the center of the universe, because it speaks, many of the religions do, speak of God creating the world, as if there weren't 400 billion suns in this galaxy alone, each, perhaps, with a retinue of maybe 100 worlds. So we were the center of the universe, and what science has taken from us has been very profound, but it's to me, giving up that sense of your centrality in exchange for understanding that you are part of the greater fabric of nature is the defining experience of adulthood. That's what we need to do if we're going to grow up. When we're babies, when we're toddlers, we think of ourselves as the center of the universe. Science. Uh, we all remember looking at the TV, sure that the host of the kids' show we're watching knows us. us. We're talking just to us. Exactly, exactly. Was, that and was our time. friend on the TV. When you have to, when it comes a time when you give that up, but what do you give it up in exchange for it in a healthy lifetime? What you get in return is so much greater than that delusion of centrality, and that's what science has done. It may not be trying to wrest back the spiritual reins of our consciousness, but what it has done, and nothing else could do it, it's the only thing I know of that has weaned us of our adolescent, pre-adolescent need to be central. Uh, there's a story I don't think I've ever told publicly, not that it's a private story, but it's just the occasion hasn't come up. This might be the one. The very first week that the Rose Center for Earth and Space opened, uh, I got a letter in the mail from a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. 
in Philadelphia. And I saw it's interesting. The first week we're open. All right. First round of first bag of mail to come in. And by the way, that show, what which the two folks here co-wrote, uh, was called Passport to the Universe. And it was a journey from Earth to the edge of the cosmos and then back. And while you're there, we kind of keep track of Earth as it recedes into nothingness, into sort of the infinite distant uh, land that it is. And so this letter from this professor of psychology said, I've just seen the space show at the Hayden Planetarium. And what first he introduced himself, I'm professor of psychology, and I specialize in all the forces around us that lead us to feel insignificant. <laughs> and I said, bummer of a job, right? Man, what's that like going to the office every day? And, and he said, I've just returned from your space show. And needless, I'm quoting now, needless to say, it was the greatest eliciter of feelings of insignificance that I have ever experienced. And then he said, I would like to do a survey of your visitors before and after to test what is their effect on their psychology. And then I thought about that. And then I said, well, we, do we park, you know, counselors and psychologists out at the exit, you know, for, for free pick-me-ups? Or is the real problem not that the show was a letdown, but that he came in with an ego that was too large to begin with? Because when I saw that show, I just thought of the immensity of the cosmos and that our, you know, 15 pounds worth of head and brain matter figured that out. And so I kind of felt kind of large when I looked at it, but he didn't. He felt small. So how much of this is just, what is your ego walking into the problem? And maybe it's an ego management issue. <laughs> there were other letters that you got from people who, who said they were deeply moved. Oh, yeah. Others, others people who said they were brought to, to tears. tears. To tears. Yes. That's correct. And, and they were thrilled. Thrilled. And thankful. Thrilled. But th this guy was a professor of psychology, so... He's, you know, and no telling what, what he's doing now, you know, I don't know. Well, I remember once uh, Carl was giving a lecture at Cornell, and uh, he was talking about what I call the great demotions that science had dealt us over the last 400 years in terms of constantly, you know, not at the center of the solar system, not at the center of the galaxy, okay, not at the center of the universe, just one after another, tiny little planet. And um, we we might not even be made of the stuff that most of the universe is made of. Yeah. That's a, that's another. That's, oh, I don't add that one. About that. <laughs> you want to add the mo that's like we're not even that. You know. Okay, but go on. And uh, and afterwards, this young man came up to him, tremendous amount of feeling, and he said, "You now that you've taken all the meaning out of my life, what do I do?" And Carl looked at him and said, "Do something meaningful." <laughs> and that's it. You know, it's like, I'm sorry, but it's like, you know, it reminds me in the old days when people used to talk about, you know, what's your sign? As if there was some... That's not the old days. They still do that. <laughs> All right. There's well, no old days about it. Now. But it was like an, a kind of unearned, an unearned identity, an unearned mm -hmm. being special for some unearned reason. When, in fact, what I think what Carl was saying was that, you know, Okay, so the universe is much bigger, much older than our the greatest prophets ever dreamed. And look we are we're all here together tonight. You know, the greatness of finding each other in the vastness, in the immensity. 
being here alive at this moment. The universe has been here for 13 and a half billion years, we think, at this moment. This planet has been here for four and a half billion years. And here we are, we are alive and conscious in the cosmos. And we live at a moment where the horizons, the identification horizons, our ability to respect and care for each other are expanding at a phenomenal rate. Two steps back, no question about it. Murder and mayhem, a lot of craziness. But I feel just such hope because it seems to me that every single day there are new discoveries and new examples of what we can take with these revelations of science and do to make this planet a better place to live. Oh, okay. Um, Steve, I know you had dug up a couple of quotes that you wanted to share with the audience. Uh, you had one about, which one was it? There was one that... The Cosmos one about the... You mean the end of Cosmos? Yeah, the Cosmos. Could, yeah. you, read, could, could yeah. you read that for people? This is the, the final words of Cosmos of the television series and the book. So this would have been in the, thir- the, the 13th episode. Yeah. And at the end of the book itself. Yes. Was, the 13th episode was called Who Speaks for Earth. Who Speaks for Earth. Yeah. Okay. We are the local embodiment of a cosmos grown to self-awareness. We have begun to contemplate our origins, star stuff pondering the stars, organized assemblages of 10 billion 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 atoms, considering the evolution of atoms, tracing the long journey by which here at least consciousness arose. Our loyalties are to the species and to the planet. We speak for Earth. Our obligation to survive is owed not just to ourselves, but also to that cosmos, ancient and vast, from which we spring. I would say that that's, that's the statement of a, of a spiritually enlightened man. Spiritually enlightened. Yeah. So is that enough for people, do you think, to share that view? Or will there still be some gap? There are people who lost loved ones, who mm-hmm. lost children. Yeah. I get phone calls at least once a week from people who heard that you might be able to buy a star Mm. and they want to buy a star in the name of their dead loved ones. And I have to tell them that the company that does that is under investigation by, you know, I mean, it's this. So what am I offering this person who is bereaved over the death of a a loved one? This is nice language. It's it's all beautiful. No one here is in denial of that. But what solace does it give in time of need where religion has a whole system by which it can allow you to come to terms with just these kinds of incidents? Well, I feel like I've had some experience with that kind of grief. And uh, I've thought a lot about this in the last 10 years since Carl's death. And, uh, and I have to say that Carl and I knew we would never see each other again. But, uh, on his deathbed. On his deathbed, we, you know. But our lovely daughter is here in the audience, Sasha Sagan. Now, to me, that is the embodiment of what is so precious and beautiful about life. And the fact is is that, yes, I'll never see Carl again, but we spent 20 years together and we gave each other every possible bit of ourselves. And we, and, and not only that, but because we were together, there are two children, Sam and Sasha, who's sitting somewhere over there. And I look at them every day and I think, this is so much better than any supernatural story I've heard. Sasha and Sam, carry within them 
the reality, the DNA of my love and Carl's love and our love for each other. Materially, not in some kind of nice poetic way, but in reality. What is greater than that? There's no story, forgive me, but visions of immaculate conceptions and things like that, they mean nothing to me compared to the human, the reality of human biology and the fact that when we come closest to each other, we can create new life forms that carry on that continuity that stretches back all those billions of years. And in them are the generations of human beings who've struggled. That is magnificent. And no supernatural story can compare with it. Sasha, does she speak like this all the time? Where, where's, your, where's the daughter? She's in the audience there. <laughs> uh, that's a lot to live up to, all right? You got you get, you get your four and a half billion years of genes. <laughs> um, Steve, I know that uh, the two of you agreed that uh, you would read from the pale blue dot. Mm. One of what I think one of the most powerful passages of scientific insight into the relationship between ourselves and the cosmos that I have ever seen or heard. And we have an image of the pale blue dot. Annie, if you could introduce what the pale blue dot is. Yeah. Okay, well, I think Just as I, an idea. As I mentioned earlier, before Carl begged and pleaded for years, NASA did not want any cameras on the spacecraft. And after that was achieved, he asked that the Voyager spacecraft which are the furthest things ever made by human beings. They are now out beyond the, um, the orbit of Pluto. Of Neptune, yes. Of Neptune. And, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the, I mean, we can say the orbit of Pluto yeah. without saying... It's well into right. the Kuiper Belt. They are now yes. far out beyond. But in 1990, on Valentine's Day, after 10 years of Carl's nudging, <laughs> NASA finally agreed to turn the cameras of, of camera of Voyager 2 out by the orbit of Neptune back towards Earth to look at our planet in the context of the wider universe, not the frame-filling Apollo image, which has been so important to our civilization, but now the Earth in the context of the solar system and the wider cosmos. And, and so there's a book written with that as the title. Called Pale, Pale Blue, Dot. Blue Dot. Called Pale Blue a Dot. A masterpiece uh, about the human future in space, as prophetic now as it was 15 years ago when it was written. And in it, Carl muses on this picture that he was responsible for taking. Look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joys and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner, 
in the history of our species live there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequently their mis how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot the only home we've ever known. And I want to end on that note. You can't really follow conversation <laughs> with that after that quote, but I consider that one of the most powerful statements of the cosmic perspective ever penned. And so join me in giving one final thank you to Steve and Ann, and we'll go to questions now. If we can bring the house lights up, and we'll just we'll go to Q&A, and I'll, I'll wait for me to come around with the microphone. Thanks. Yes, thank you both for your ideas. In this discussion of religion and science, it seems that religion's chief function, one could arguably say, is to deal with the subject that science empirically cannot, and which you have not mentioned in your, in your, in your presentation, but have alluded to. And that word is evil. What does science say about evil, or what is the role of science in addressing evil, which is a pernicious human problem, the problem in the species that converts everything science makes against the species? Well, that's a very good point. And I would say, I wouldn't go as far as you have gone to say that it converts everything that science makes into against the species, but way too much. But for me, that is, you know, when you say evil, religion's view of evil is as a supernatural phenomena. Mm. Science doesn't see it as a supernatural phenomena, but as a fact that it's part of our evolutionary baggage, that we can understand it much better when we look at the history of our evolution and how we got to be this way and demystify it. I mean, I think that religion actually has a very hard time with the problem of evil. Because if you posit an all-powerful God who, had, who calls all the shots, and then you create a situation like, for instance, the extirpation of the Native Americans on this continent, or Auschwitz, or any one of a number of very long, tragically long list of crimes, it's hard to understand. How, and I think that there's a very wide-scale acknowledgement among the religious community that it has no answer for this question of evil because we're talking about the untold suffering of the innocents and something within that all-powerful God's control. The scientific understanding of evil is to demystify it, to understand its components. And that engine of demystification is, in my opinion, our best shot at combating evil.
rather than creating a kind of uh, symbolic representation of evil and giving that representation a power over us when it may not even exist. So, for yes, I, science has been horribly misused. I completely agree with that, and it's, I feel that it's incumbent upon scientists and the general public to work against its misuse. But I don't believe that the real solution to these questions comes from outside the realm of our understanding of who we are and how we got to be this way. In principle, it could come from the studies of neurobiology that they're now doing in the brain centers and what controls emotions and passions and socially deviant uh, behavior. We have another question here. The question that has stuck in my mind as I've heard many conversations about the conflicts that exist today is just the conversation we had tonight why? Why isn't it a bigger part of the public uh, conversation? It just seems to be hidden and it's not coming out. What is it going to take to make it a bigger part of the public conversation? And you're CEO of a media company, so it's all your fault, right? <laughs> I'm doing my part. I'm doing what I can. Uh, no, you're right. It's not much talked about on television. I think it's one of the, it's part of that sense that, you know, everyone else in the country believes something other than what maybe you or I believe. Uh, and I don't, I think part of it, I think 9-11 was uh, a kind of um, such a trauma for our country that it, as we saw, it was a kind of a, a great leap backwards into fear-based politics and fear-based religion. And suddenly it felt like we were living in the 1950s in, in certain ways in that uh, there was a, suddenly a a consensus that I didn't even know it existed of uh, a kind of um, public piety in a very traditional way and a kind of doffing of the hat at every turn to this this kind of public agreed upon idea of what our view of God is and I think that the fear the seismic fear is retreating I think with the events of the last week uh, was a great sign that that's happening and that those old appeals to, um, you know, to a very kind of uh, confined and very rigid idea of what spirituality is and what patriotism is and all those other ideas is finally uh, receding. And maybe we'll see more of these conversations. I mean, nothing, the fact that these books are on the bestseller list is a good, is another sign in the wind that maybe the zeitgeist is shifting back to a more questioning uh, point of view. Uh, Annie, I'm reminded of just a couple of days after 9-11, President Bush made, uh, gave a speech. I forgot where it was in the Rose Garden or at the Capitol, but in an attempt to distinguish we from they, he made the following statement, loosely quoting from Genesis. He said, our God is the God who named the stars. Now, of course, as uh, the astronomers in the audience know, two-thirds of all stars that have names have Arabic names. So this was, this was probably not his intent. But the alignment, the religious alignment started very early, immediately after September 11th. That's exactly right. Uh, we have another question here. Thank you. Um, it's really a comment. I wanted to speak to uh, your reference to Dr. Sagan as a popularizer of science. Um, I'm part of a generation that was inspired to go into the physical and chemical and biological sciences after the publication of Intelligent Life in the Universe with Josef Shlowski in 1960. 
And um, just some examples of Dr. Sagan's popularization. He once um, was asked on a radio program, what are the implications of life elsewhere in the universe? To which he responded, what are the implications if there isn't any? Also, he once said that uh, the cell, the, um, the function of cells is so amazing, we eat mashed potatoes but don't become mashed potatoes. <laughs> I mean, it's not true that you are what you eat, you know. Thank you for those recollections. I had, I didn't, I had never heard the mashed potato one. It's wonderful. <laughs> It seems like a lot of the uh, discourse right now is related to the lexicon of what is, you know, religion, what isn't, what is spirituality, what isn't. And I was wondering if you think there's a risk in using a word like spirituality, which by definition refers to a spirit or supernatural force, and applying that to the world of science, if we, there's also not a risk of, you know, putting people on a defensive who, who would be religious, do, do believe very intensely in their spirituality and how that relates to a god and a supernatural being if there's not a risk of, you know, kind of shutting down intelligent debate and just putting them on defensive. By, uh, I'm trying to understand, by using the word spirituality, because we're a little bit hobbled by our language. Our scientific society comes so much later than our language. Our language is rooted in a pre-scientific age, and so it's you know, I've, I've thought, and we've all tried to find another word that captures that. And you're right, the derivation of the word is specifically... Well, but spirit breathe. is the same as the word inspired. Yes, It right. has to do with breathing. breathing. Right. With right, right. And so you... In your breathing, you're interacting with the atmosphere, this life-giving ocean that we live in. But doesn't it come from a kind of a classical notion that you're breathing in the spirit it's, of a god, or a yeah, god yeah. breathes Any etymologist here on the word but, but spirit? But it doesn't necessarily require that it be supernatural. Actually, I think what matters is not That's who invented the word spirit, but how it's getting used yeah. at any given time. And so how it's getting used, when a religious person yeah. says spirit, they mean something usually different from what yeah. a scientist means yeah. when a scientist says they had a spiritual moment. Because, right, when I'm on the mountaintop and I get misty-eyed, yes. I feel spiritual, but I'm not feeling like there are woodland spirits. Right, but the word inspirational is neutral, isn't, is it not? That is. That, has, that carries but, no baggage. And yet, the inspirational comes, as Steve just pointed out, from that same spiritual, that same use of the word spiritual or spirituality. So you're going to keep using the word spiritual? I'm going to keep using it. I don't know. <laughs> You touched before on the nature of evil. Can you extend the discussion to ethics? Because, like it or not, religion has claimed ethics as its uh, turf. And one of the one of the problems when you have a discussion with a religious person is they say, well, if you take away religion, then you take away ethics, and science has no structure or system of ethics to replace the one that we have now, and society will therefore fall apart. Well, for a million years, we were hunter-gatherers. Probably a million years before we developed any of the religions that any of us would recognize as, as being religions, we were hunter-gatherers. And from the few remnants of hunter-gatherer society left, which may not be representative of the vast majority of them, but give us some insight into what our ethical system was when we were hunter-gatherers and we lived in small bands, 70 or 50 people, 
And I think part of what's so uh, why we are in such a time of upheaval and dislocation is not only a scientific revolution, but just merely the fact that we're now we live in aggregates of 10 million as opposed to, you know, I think the invention of agriculture and our settling down has really, we haven't yet come to grips with that. We're still dealing with the after effects of that great change in, our, in the way of being human. But By the way, that would include communicable diseases, which were yes, mostly unheard of, of right. before we all settled down together and lived sandwich style in, in, in partners with right. domesticated but animals. I, I've seen no evidence from what I know of the majority of surviving hunter-gatherer people that they were not not only our equals ethically, but in some ways, and this may be an idealization, but in some ways, you know, that they had a better sense of what it is to share with a community, a better sense of what it is to be part of the social fabric than we do. And I don't see any evidence in, you know, if you look at the history of the last several thousand years, there's no evidence that you can point to, if you have anything, I'd like to hear it, in which the fact that there were religious ideologies kept people from treating each other with unspeakable brutality. In fact, the great challenges to our ethics as a civilization, slavery, the Holocaust, they, there were religious individuals who were exemplary, but the great religious institutions were not. In fact, in some cases, they aided and abetted mass slaughter. So I'm, I'd love to see, you know, if you, I'd love to hear a great argument for the ways in which religion has actually made us better than we naturally are. I'd like to add, uh, Ed and I were uh, attendees at a workshop in, at the Salk Institute just a week ago where this subject came up multiple times. Salk Institute is one of the centers of neuroscience, and there's a lot of studies on brain function and brain behavior and human behavior as a product of brain behavior. And one of the repeating issues that came up was about just about this, this ethics issue or morality, more speaking more broadly. And some interesting sort of rebuttals to that point were raised. For example, if you look around the world at nations that are sort of the least religious, you can rank them. And up there are like the Scandinavian nations. Denmark has the highest percent of any nation in the world of people who are just outright atheists. And if you look at these countries, there's not a higher trend for those countries to be less moral than countries where there's a higher percent of people claiming religiosity. That would be the first indication that you need a religion around to surround you in order to ensure that you behave morally. Uh, and that doesn't, it's not borne out in the statistics of nations. But not only that, there are passages in the Old Testament, for example, in Leviticus, where there are sort of recipes for how you should treat people who misbehave. Among them is that you should stone adulterers. You should, one of them, I think, is you create great harm to a child who disrespects an adult. And we don't do those things because deep inside us we know that that's wrong to do that. Yet it's written that way in Scripture. And so we're applying some other understanding of morality beyond what the instructions are in a religious text in modern times. And so what that tells us is that whatever is the source, which that can be argued and debated, we are continually evolving our sense of ethics based on the emergent society in which we live, which tells us that slavery is wrong, which could, which 
everybody justified biblically at the time it was being conducted. And we're doing that by some other, and who knows what that is? That's an interesting question. Where do we get our morals that are in place when they're not actually derived from Scripture? And so it's a, it's a major frontier in, in, in philosophy. But I just want to share that with you, and that was a common recurring theme. A question right here. Man has been seeking God since they've been walking upright. I was wondering, why is it that we could continue to keep on seeking God and we continue to keep on explaining Him and we continue to uh, try to explain faith in some godly kind of way? And I was wondering, can we all think of faith as an individual issue or rather than just seeking this explanation through something higher than us? I think that's an excellent point. Great. An excellent. Yeah. Well, we're primates, and we come from our ancestors. We're used to looking for the alpha male to, to tell them what to do, to comfort them, to protect them from predators, to protect them from dangers. And this is a kind of a, a vestige of that. I mean, the fact that we think of God as him is, is curious. Uh, especially... And you know it's a she, of course. That's right. Well, either way, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's just the idea that God has a gender is a very funny notion. Uh, the creator of the universe is either male or female. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, we are, you know, one species of... Uh, a huge number of species. We, our tenure on this planet is five minutes compared to the planet itself and the other life forms, many of them. So it's just funny that, I mean, obviously it's a projection of us, just like our visions of the extraterrestrials have a certain reptilian character to them. But one of her points is that it persists. It's persisted for thousands of years. In spite of the scientific revolution, in spite of the industrial revolution, in spite of the information revolution that we're now experiencing. So there's something that it seems like it's not going to go away. And so do we, rather than fight that fact, should we find some way to embrace it or understand it on another kind of level rather than simply present what would be a substitute for that emotion? I think I go with the latter. Yeah, I mean, I think understanding is the key to everything. It's always better to understand. But I don't pretend to know. The, my opinion is that I, I agree with the latter, but I certainly don't pretend to know the answer to such a this very big question. Um, I personally feel that uh, religion has two main goals. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but um, to explain the unknown and to provide a system of ethics for society. So I was wondering, over time, do you feel that um, religion has lost, has gone so far off path that it's lost that main idea um, that it has in the first place? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a great statement, a very good description. I would say human social organization is another, another task of religion, organized religion anyway. But, uh, yeah, I think its ability to explain the unknown pales in comparison to science. And so maybe that's what's happening, is that having lost its ability to explain the unknown, having made up stories about that explain the unknown that are in many ways no longer tenable, religion evolves into something else. And maybe part of what that is is science. And I would, uh, let me modify his question and then get your reaction again. If I sort of make an adjustment to that question and say that religion may have historically provided answers to the unknown, but today science, I'm sorry, religion historically provided answers to the unknown, today science works really good at that. 
perhaps a, an enlightened religious scholar would say, no, religion plies, supplies answers to the unknowable. Or a way of, that's another wow. better way to say it, a way of... Um, of embracing the unknowable. But if you really want to embrace the unknowable, why don't you call it what it is and don't pretend you know it? Why don't you oh, say, okay. <laughs> why do you say, all right, a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and if you do that, then you're fine. Then you everybody's know? cool with that. Okay. Another question. We're going to take two more questions. Hi. Um, I wonder, uh, from my um, experience with uh, intelligent design, it doesn't seem very different from 18th century deism. And um, I wonder if you could give me an explanation for why it does seem to recur so often and become popular and whether or not there is some kind of final argument uh, that can defeat it. I think it has to do with our need as a species to feel special. And intelligent de design catches on because it's a way of resting back from science cloaked in scientific language and with cloaked in scientific authority. Wow, there was a reason why we came to be. And there is a God who made us. And since we like to think we're in control on this world, that we can rest that kind of, that, uh, that feeling of being at the center of things that science has taken away from us. And since science has been so successful at doing that, to cloak our need to feel special and central and designed by a loving designer is finally satisfied in scientific terms. By the way, Anne, one of my favorite examples of why we are not in charge is, <laughs> the, is, the, is the knowledge that there are more bacteria in your intestines than there are people on Earth. Uh, so we are just sort of housing for bacteria to live out their lives. <laughs> That's the bacterial point of view. The bacteria. <laughs> uh, thank you guys both for speaking tonight. This might be unanswerable, but it seems tangential to a lot of what we've been talking about. So here in this room, we're having a very reasonable, calm discussion, but kind of outside this room, you know, there's, there's a bit of a war of ideas going on. There's Bill O'Reilly's culture wars. There's all kinds of things, and it seems like science takes it offensively when intelligent design wants to be taught in schools, and rightfully so in my personal opinion. And there's a lot of back and forth, and people seem to take it really offensively and get very heated, and there's not a lot of intelligent discourse. And I'm wondering if either of you, or you, sir, as well, have any thoughts on how to resolve that better. Are there ways and methods? Are there new things that can be published, new conversations that should be had to kind of end this war of ideas and make it more of a discussion? Uh, allow me to clarify one point, and we'll go straight to Steve. I've been pretty outspoken personally on intelligent design and what the consequences would be if it took hold uh, in our educational system. The consequences, speaking even just practically, to the future economy of the nation because it would undermine the creativity of someone who might otherwise find a solution to the problem but says, no, this is too hard, God did it, and let me go on to another problem. And that just stops progress. But my, my point there is I personally never had a problem with teaching religion or intelligent design in schools. The problem is when either of those are put forth as science in the science classroom. And that, in that way, the science student 
does not understand or is confused as to how science works, and then you undermine the future scientific literacy of the nation. But there's no denying the value of comparative religion, for example. It's in, taught in every college, right? Um, so I don't think anyone here would say you should not teach this somewhere in the curriculum. It just doesn't belong in the science curriculum. But Steve, you had no, a you, you made the point that exactly that I was going to make, that it should be taught in, in history of religion and philosophy and other places, but not as science because it is wrong. You know, That's it, the simple answer. <laughs> it, 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 it's uh, just wrong. It, it, makes, okay. it, 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 it makes falsifiable statements. It says that the, all the structures of biology are intelligently designed, but we just mentioned that the wings of the penguin, uh, the wings of the ostrich, our wisdom teeth, our vermiform appendix, which only has the function of suddenly killing us without any warning. These are not intelligently designed. These are vestiges. Oh, so they, there could be a designer, but the designer is equally be, as stupid could, as intelligent, well, the given, designer, or given this evidence. But, the designer is very interested in beetles because the designer created 500,000 different kinds of beetles. Okay. <laughs> Hi, this, this has been an exhilarating discussion, so thank you very much. Um, thank you. It, it pulls up a lot of things, but in answer or in a speculation about the idea of constantly pursuing sort of an external ineffable God to explain what we, what we can't, do you think the, um, the fear of death overpowers our enthusiasm for life, that we need some solace in the after, and, and we have to believe in that? I think if we were honest with our children and didn't lie about death to our children, they wouldn't grow up needing to believe that we don't die. And we would solve a lot of these problems. We showed enough confidence in our children to tell them the truth about the preciousness and the finiteness of life. I think that we would see a society that was less attached to the notion of the afterlife. Uh, I just want to know, where do you see America, the world, five years from now? I want to ask that of both of you. And, and what are you doing about that fact? For the, for the, can I answer the first part? Because okay, sure, in, go. In Carl's words, prophecy is a lost art. Prophecy is a lost art. So you're not, we're not, you're not going to be an oracle for us today, no? Yeah, I, also, besides, I'm always wrong. So, so I can tell you what I think, but I can assure you that it would not come to pass. But, so I have no idea where we'll be, but I have a lot of hope based on the events, recent events, that we are coming to our senses. And uh, that's all I know. Do you love Science in the City podcasts? Support them by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. You can do this by visiting us online at scienceandthecity.org and clicking Join NIAS. Did you know that Science in the City podcasts are available on iTunes and you can get our newest story downloaded every week automatically to your iTunes library? All you have to do is search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. Do you have questions or comments about our show? We would love your feedback. You can send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. If you want to know more about science and culture in New York City, you should check us out online. Visit scienceandthecity.org. We'll see you next week.